Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Corrado, Professor of Political Sociology at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Irvin Cabalquinto of Deakin University. Irvin is the author of Immobile Homes, Family Life at a Distance in the Age of Mobile Media, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. The book examines how transnational Filipino families remain connected through mobile media technologies such as smartphones, messaging apps, and social media. It focuses on the lives of transnational Filipino families in Australia, but the insights it generates resonate to diverse experiences of migration around the world. Hi, Irvin. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nicole. Thank you very much for having me today. All right. So, Irvin, let's begin by contextualizing your work on the case study, which is the Philippines. So, in the book, you describe the Philippines as a distributed nation. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so that notion of the distributed nation was actually referring to this arrangement of dispersed family members, particularly in the context of the Philippines, wherein the movements of family members would be shaped by economic, social, political, and even technological factors. So I was referring to that kind of like arrangement, particularly by Filipino transnational uh, family members. Looking at the use of technologies, despite being physically separated, they're actually virtually connected. And this Connections were facilitated by modern communication technologies, online platforms, and even social media platforms. And in that kind of like engagements, the kind of like practices um, particularly performed by these transnational family members would be enacted through digital communication technologies in a very positive way. But at the same time, there were burdens or challenges encountered in that distributed um, arrangement. And it's also interesting that these family members would be using technologies on an everyday basis to reclaim a sense of family in that environment. But we need to also take into account that that distribution of individuals across countries would be shaped by the colonialist and social historical context of the Philippines, wherein the Philippines was colonized by the Spaniards, Americans, and then Japanese, and then eventually Americans as well. And in a neo-colonial context, this kind of like dependence on economies of the global north, for example, in the United States would be shaping the kind of like economies that we have in the Philippines. And that economy would be shaping the distribution of movements of people, for example, ordinary Filipinos across the world because of the very fact of the lack of access to social welfare benefits and also other public services in the country. So this distribution is actually enacted through technologies, but also shaped by that broader political economic context wherein movements of people would be shaped by the lack of access to resources, but also this kind of like reclaiming of family life through digital technologies. 
And of course, the focus of the book is how the movement of people is not just shaped by the political economy of labor, but it's also shaped by the domesticity of labor. So tell us about how you conceptualize domesticity in the age of smartphones. Yeah, so when I actually started looking at the case of the transnational Filipino families, I was referring to this family life. So these are the everyday, intimate, and even kind of like um gendered and even familiarly shaped kind of like practices. So in that kind of like understanding of the domesticity, I was referring to the practices in the household, in a physical household. But obviously in the context of the transnational Filipino family, that domesticity is actually territorialized in the digital space. And when I I speak about this reterritorialization of the, um, the domesticity, I was referring to the use of technologies to sustain that kind of like gendered and familial practices. For example, a mother would not be able to kind of like care physically, but would be able to care transnationally and virtually. And this is the same with the case of a father providing resources to the family through technologies, through sending remittances, and even consumer goods through digital technologies. And even, for example, an adult migrant children would be performing that sense of filial piety among, you know, aging family members or aging parents, rather, in the Philippines through the use of technologies. So technologies will be providing an opportunity, actually a lot of opportunities for transnational Filipino family members to sustain family life. And that domesticity disrupted by, you know, the physical separation would be reclaimed through digital connections. However, we need to take note that these connections are also kind of like very ambivalent for family members because of existing um, inequalities and asymmetrical factors. Let's talk about first the inequality in the family life. So if you have that economic inequality, that would be shaping the kind of like interactions in that what I call transnational connections, right? So if a family member back in the Philippines would not have that access to, for example, um, enough services or money to provide for the family, the migrant worker would be providing that and that would be enacted through the use of digital technologies. But at the same time, there are also kind of like ambivalence in that space wherein the family members would be sending money back home, but they were kind of like also um, being surveilled by family members in the house, in transnational household, when they post something on Facebook as a kind of like showcasing what they're purchasing here in Australia, the family members back home might comment that you should not be doing that, but rather sending money back home. So that connection can actually be triggering some kind of like tension in that what I call transnational household. But of course, you know, the family members would be reclaiming this sense of um, domesticity through digital media use. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating because I think traditionally, and this obviously shows my age, when we are taught how the Filipino family functions, it feels like the power relations are so obvious, right? It's usually the parents or the grandparents that have the power. But with the age of smartphones, has there been a reconfiguration of such power relationships in the family. So, for example, you mentioned surveillance of what people post on Facebook. Is it also possible that children are surveilling their parents and it's not just uh, what the usual parents surveilling their children and disciplining them in terms of how they use their money? Yeah, that's a very good question, Nicole, because when you start thinking about surveillance, for example, in the digital environment, particularly for um, transnational Filipino family members, um, the kind of like I was mentioning when you kind of like have this migrant workers showcasing what they purchase overseas and their lives overseas, these are all curated via social media platforms. And obviously on social media platforms, 
other members, other relatives, keens, and even friends would be accessing those information because they're very accessible in a digital and public space. And somehow that kind of like connection would be also triggering a form of surveillance wherein they can comment based on their relationship with that migrant worker. For example, an aging mother back in the Philippines would be saying, you should not be posting or buying all of these shoes because you already had so many shoes. You should be sending money back home because you have a responsibility in here. So what the migrant would be doing instead of posting more photos down the track, he or she would be removing those posts and try to kind of like filter. So this is a form of negotiation and understanding as well that they're being surveilled by their family members because of that kind of like relationship. But also surveillance would be happening through digital media skills. For example, the kind of like family members or, for example, um, young adult migrant children in Australia would be kind of like surveilling what their mothers or fathers are doing in the Philippines because of that knowledge of accessing the technology, for example, by looking at photos and looking at, you know, other um, channels to see what they're actually doing. And parents back home would also be doing these practices by accessing the photos of, you know, their adult migrant children, for example, in Australia. But also it's interesting because surveillance can be controlled by excluding some family members. And this was very interesting, for example, family group chats, wherein the knowledge of um, young family members would be actually important in excluding, for example, the mother <laughs> or the father in that environment because, you know, the father and the mother might be commenting on conversations that should just be fun or just, you know, making fun of something, but it's becoming kind of like a serious thing for those parents. So you can see that kind of like um, power relations as well. And at the same time, I like how you actually talk about this notion of surveillance, Nicole, because... Um, some um, wives in the Philippines would be surveilling their um, husbands' lives in Australia. For example, there's a kind of like using frequency, for example, everyday calls or on Skype. So when you do Skype, you can actually see the person in the bedroom or in the apartment, right? So I had a participant, she was actually saying, okay, can we actually now make a call through Skype? And then the husband said here in Australia, said that oh, I'm actually um, just with my friends here in the apartment. And then the wife was suspecting <laughs> that the husband was not really in the apartment or with friends. So what the wife said, can you actually switch on your camera because I want to see you in your bedroom with your friends. But actually the husband was in the friend's place, not in his apartment. So what he did, he actually ran from the friend's place to his apartment and then switched on the Skype video. And that's a way to kind of like show that, you know, I'm actually in the apartment. But in fact, there was kind of like negotiation of that uh, moment. But it's also building trust between him and also the wife back in the Philippines because the wife was already suspecting because of like him being away and kind of like being friendly to people and also suspecting that he might be womanizing in that respect. Wow. So transnational relationships really become a site of intense political and political struggles. That's really... Fascinating. For me personally, my, my favorite chapter in the book is the one entitled Digital Lifeline in Turbulent Times. And in that chapter, you mentioned some of your respondents managed heightened anxiety during a crisis by not disclosing information to their loved ones working overseas. And the point is, they don't want their loved ones to worry. And you cite the work of Mirka Madianu and Danny Miller who observed that in the Philippines, uh, not complaining is part of a collective responsibility not to worry those who have gone abroad on the family's behalf. 
So we're both overseas Filipino workers. Uh, this really resonated with me because I feel like I'm always the last to know when there's a crisis at home. So can you unpack this for us? What does this do to the affective connections of transnational families? Yeah, when I was actually doing that um, chapter on digital um, kind of like crisis, if you like, I was actually really reflecting on the case of transnational families in the way separation actually triggered a lot of anxieties for family members. And even in my case, because I'm a migrant, I'm away from my family members. And that physical separation can actually be triggering that level of anxiety or even kind of like, you know, just, um, you know, the tension of being away and just worrying, right? But then that level of kind of like anxiety would be increasing, particularly in the context of a crisis. But at the same time, I'm actually noticing that when it comes to sustaining relationships, there's this kind of like um, negotiation of that um, relationship in terms of, yes, you are away from your family members. And this is an understanding from the left behind family members. Huh? You're away from us. So we know that you might be struggling overseas. You might have all of this kind of like problems. So we don't want you to have all of these problems again, which would be happening in the Philippines. And we don't want this to be part of the conversation. So if the family members back in the Philippines can manage the tension or the problems, they won't say it. And this would be the same in the case of migrants, that if I can actually manage this kind of like um, issues or tensions overseas, then I won't say all of this information in a conversation through, you know, for example, through video conferencing, through social media and all of these channels. So there's this kind of like shielding or filtering of information to ensure that the level of anxiety of being separated would not be increasing. But obviously, for example, when there's a crisis, there are kind of interruptions, there were kind of like unpredictable. Um, events happening. And for some family members, it was too much. So at some point, they were also revealing this kind of like issues through digital technologies. For example, I had a participant like back in the Philippines, he was investing on a house. He was sure that the family members were living in a very safe space, but then eventually there was heavy rain, outpour of rain. And then he was really having these issues that the wife actually messaged him that there was flooding in their area and he was surprised because that place was a bit in a on a higher ground but also kind of like a new subdivision so he was worried that despite in the investment back home there was a kind of like tensions or issues surround that environment but very unpredictable so the wife needed really support in that space and also wanting to know that these things are happening in the environment and we you need to know this because this is beyond my control and i also needed that kind of like support so if it's too much family members we're revealing all of this information to seek support, but also this idea of caring for the family. So there was an expectation that, yep, I can manage all of these little things in the family, but if there are tensions that were too much for the family, we needed to actually manage this through a collective. But also, Nicole, I also noticed that um, for example, for family members, they we use this kind of like humorous approach, which you might be able to relate that, you know, we are in a crisis, but we tend to laugh at this crisis that we have to soften the pain and the burden in such environment. For example, family members back in the Philippines would be having issues on health of a family member, right? Having a bronchitis, being rushed to the hospital. But the brother back home would not be highlighting all of this anxiety-inducing information, but rather play around with visuals, for example, sending a photo of a family member on the bed <laughs> in the hospital and then showcasing that, making fun of the face of that family member. So, But then that information would be providing the 
information for the family members overseas that, you know, there's an issue in the Philippines that we need to manage. But at the same time, we're trying to soften that situation. Yeah, I mean, I think what I learned from your book is how the norms of disclosure and crisis communication, these norms are constantly negotiated in creative and sometimes unexpected ways. And the way you talk about these examples, they're just so vivid and engaging, which I think brings me to the question of research ethics and methodology, because your book provides very intimate portraits of your respondents and their families. And as you mentioned, the tensions they face, the marital problems they face. So I wonder, uh, what were the ethical tensions that you had to navigate in your work that allowed you to create this beautiful book as an outcome? Yeah, so in my book, I actually did a multi-sided um, in-depth interviewing, but also kind of like a short ethnography. But also I use visual methods, which is like photo elicitation and photo documentation. So some of the tensions that I encountered during my fieldwork would be engaging with the participants, especially when they're kind of like very emotional during the interview. For example, when I was in the Philippines, I was interviewing this mother in Pampanga. She started crying when I started asking about how she feels towards this arrangement of her being away from the son, a nurse in Australia. And she was just so emotional because that moment of being away from the son would be reminding her the very fact that she won't be able to provide the kind of like good life that she'd be envisioning for the son because of their lack of financial stability in the Philippines. But then with technology, she's somehow happy that she's able to connect through smartphones, social media channels, and kind of like look at what's happening with the son's life overseas. So at that moment, when she started crying, I actually asked to stop the interview and even reschedule the interview, even though I traveled from Manila to Pampanga. And she said to me, just give me a few moments and I'll be kind of recollecting my ideas and we can restart the conversation again. But for me, that was very emotional because even on my way to their house, I was coordinating to the son based in Australia. And he even messaged me like, can you please hug my mom for me? Because I really miss her. So that moment for me was kind of like, flowing of emotions in particular kind of like fieldwork that I was in. You know, it's not just about the interviewing, but the process of coordination would be triggering that kind of emotion. But at the same time, in terms of like visual methods, some of the participants were hesitant to share their images with me because for them, it was so personal, so intimate that they thought that it's um, better not to share those images. But they were happy to just talk through or discuss what the images would be meaning in the conduct of transnational family life. But there were some who were very kind of like um, open about sharing images. For example, I just actually asked, provide me five images. And I was surprised, obviously, in the Filipino culture, we're very <laughs> open with a lot of images. So I received around 300 images <laughs> from the participants. But obviously, in my book, we just selected a few um, images for inclusion. But I received almost 200 plus to 200, 300 images. And I categorized them. And during the interviews, these were also discussed by the participants, particularly highlighting what it meant to them for their family members and also why they're storing the images and also why they're sharing or not sharing the images. So that was very powerful because, you know, when we start looking at everyday practices of use of smartphones, social media channels, we kind of like look at what the questions like what you're doing, but it's also a question, this mediation of practices, like what information do you share or what information do you receive or kind of like filter. So that was very interesting. And also through these images, there were more moments of building trust. Uh, for example, one of the participants in Australia actually called the wife back in the Philippines through Skype and told the wife that I'm actually 
going to the Philippines and interviewing her. In relation to my point earlier, this is kind of like interesting because the ethics committee asked me to contact the migrant workers and ask them to actually contact their family members back in the Philippines. So they didn't want me to contact the family members back home because they didn't want me to put pressure for these um, individuals to participate in the research. So they wanted to have that arrangement between the transnational family members rather than me interfering in that environment. So for me, that was very helpful because I first asked the participants in Australia to contact their family members back in the Philippines. But then the migrant workers also told me that, Irvin, it's fine. You can contact them. And also, if they will contact you through their phone, um, that would cost them more. So it would be better that I already told them you can contact them. So just call them and, and explain the research project in that moment. Your book is a COVID baby, so to speak. Um, I wonder how your experience of the pandemic or the lockdown where many of our relationships have become digital-only relationships, um, how these experiences affected your thinking on digital technology and domesticity. That's interesting because I published my PhD back in 2016 obviously submitted the PhD, but then I developed all of the thinking through the you know seminars, conferences over the past years. But then I also rewrote the entire document during the pandemic, wherein obviously Victoria had a lot of lockdowns and I was in a lockdown. I was in my apartment. And I was also dealing with the conditions of my family members back in the Philippines. So that moment of being stuck in an apartment physically, but also moving virtually was very important in the way I actually thought of being immobile, but also being mobile. Physically immobile for family members separated perhaps by migration regimes, which obviously with policies during the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw a lot of like hard borders being erected, you know, travel bans, lockdowns, and cross-border mobilities were constrained. So these were facilitated by policies on ensuring this kind of like health protocols, right? So it created a lot of physical immobility. But at the same time, you're correct, Nicole, with highlighting this use of technologies where all of our relationships you know, engagements were transposed or transferred rather into the digital environment. And that was interesting for virtual mobilities. But when I was actually writing my book, I also thought that there's a lot of constant or there were negotiations happening in the digital environment. Again, because of the separation, creating anxiety already for family members. And there's a kind of like practice of filtering information to ensure that we don't kind of like provide, give tensions or create more tensions for the family members either here or there. But at the same time, during the pandemic, there was kind of like negotiations as well of information that we kind of like share in our, for example, conversations via video conference, singing via social media platforms, via mobile applications. So we tend to kind of like um, choose which information we share. But at the same time, there were moments of um, sharing the kind of like asking for help on social media with family members or through, for example, other platforms. For example, in my case, um, my dad had issues with his back and also was in and out of the hospital because of checkups. I was so anxious because of that moment I was caring from afar, which I wrote in an article, caring from afar using technology frequently, you know, calling my dad and asking my brothers to bring him to the hospital, check everything for him. But there was also kind of like worry in terms of contacting my family members and asking my dad. 
But also behind the screen, I wasn't sharing that I was actually crying at some point. I wasn't um, sharing information to my family members that I was also very anxious in here. And I was just telling them I'm just busy working and trying to complete all of this deadline. So there was also filtering. But obviously, at some point, I also told my dad that I'm worried. I'm offering prayer and hopefully you'll get better and stuff like that. So this experiences made me think that this word, the language or the kind of like experiences that were told by the participants in my research, which I actually thought, oh my God, I became a participant in my own digital life world or, or in my own research, wherein I embodied that separation, performativity, but also negotiation through digital media platforms. It was challenging and I was thinking that, you know, these moments of connections were reflective of what we called ambivalent intimacies. Technologies create that connections, you know, we can exchange photos, we can do video conferencing, we can use mobile applications and even send something back in the Philippines through ordering a food online through a website. So it's creating that connection, that proximity. But at the same time, in moments of a crisis, in moments of tensions, you feel the distance and you feel like the inequalities even in our family uh, conditions. For example, for the participants, you know, despite the connections, they're also reminded that, oh my God, because of this not having access to public resources in the Philippines or job opportunities, we had to be separated and we had to rely to technologies in sustaining family life. So it was fine that they're connected, but they're also being reminded of their marginalized conditions in those in moments. Before we end, Irvin, tell us what you're working on now. I know you have a new book project in the pipeline. There are many other exciting projects you're working on. Tease us a bit. What is next for you? Okay, so I'm currently working on several projects at the moment. The first project is a book project, particularly on looking at um, YouTube and how it's shaping Philippine digital society. I'm working with Professor Cheryl Soriano of the La Salle University on this project. And it actually started with this idea when I was hanging around on YouTube and then looking at how uh, migrants, you know, would be using technologies to perform and curate their everyday lives. And I started talking to Cheryl about this performativities online. And then we started looking at the notion of um, precarity and also brokerage in such environment. So that's the first project I'm working on. But it's also building on this approach of mine in terms of critically unpacking digital practices in the context of the Philippines. The other project that I'm working on is very close to my heart because it's also building on this research that I've been working on in terms of um, labor migration and digital migration research. So it's about um, aging migrants' use of digital technologies in sustaining family life, in sustaining social and even personal um, lives. So I'm looking at the case of aging migrants here in Victoria, Australia, and the way they use technologies during the pandemic and beyond the pandemic. So in this research, I started to unpack these um, practices in the household and started really looking at how you know we might understand again or interrogate digital inequalities, particularly when you have bodies that are less mobile, but also struggling with technology use, you know, especially when we are now in a digital economy. Then we start really reflecting who are immobilized in the digital economy and who are mobile, you know, and accessing all of these opportunities in one's everyday lives. Dr. Irvin Cabalquinto, thank you for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss immobile homes, family life at a distance in the age of mobile media. Thank you very much, Nicole, for having me to your very engaging podcast.
You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This has been one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favorite podcast app.